Uh, this morning we'll be in First Thessalonians as we, as we have been for the past couple weeks. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the seat back in front of you. It's bright blue. You can't miss it. Um, and that Bible will be on page 574. Um, if you're using your own Bible, it will be um, in First Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. And I do want to say before I read, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please um, take that Bible um, that's in front of you. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Thus says God's word. You may be. Thank you, Caleb. Let's pray together one more time over this word that we've received from the scriptures. Father, thank you for the abundant provision of your scripture. The uh, Bible tells us that it is a lamp for our feet, a light to our path. You told your own disciples that your words were spirit and their life, Lord. And so, God, we ask that we would be illuminated and that we would live by your word this morning, God. God, I thank you for just the opportunity and even the freedom to come in a place like this to gather together, one congregation, and give our attention to what you, the Almighty God, Yahweh the Lord, has said. And so, Lord, I pray that we would be at full attention and receive your word as such, as the word of the Almighty God. So, God, help us to hear. Lord, you said in your word that those who have ears to hear should hear, and, Lord, not one of us naturally has ears to hear. And so, Holy Spirit, would you do a work in us? Would you do an amazing work right now to give us ears to hear? And Lord, give me lips and a tongue to speak accurately and courageously your word. And we thank you for all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I am, uh, got to say, you may have noticed this, but uh, I think Dave and Katie have a little bit of a proud look on their face this morning. Did y'all notice that? So anyway, and it's very it's very appropriate to do so. Wasn't that great having Ellie sing that song for us? Yeah, go ahead. That was great, man. Be sure, as you see her in the foyer uh, after service, be sure and tell her what a great job she did. And and what Caleb said was right. We are not the kind of church that wants to segregate our children and our youth away from the life of the body. Amen. They are just as much every bit a part of this church as you or I, without a doubt. And so we want them to, to feel that way. Hey, I also want to say before I get started, thank you to everyone who came out to Casey and Tara's house yesterday. We are so, so grateful. That I, I, have, I have rarely, and I'm serious about this, this isn't just talk, I've rarely been more encouraged by the, the cohesiveness and the, the fellowship that exists in the body of Christ as I was yesterday. That was just great. Thank you so much. I know there's a thousand things you could have been doing on a Saturday, and to help your brother and sister in Christ was a great thing. So thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. I want to uh, continue our, our series on First Thessalonians, and uh, we're going to move from there into Second Thessalonians. We'll, so we'll be here for a few more weeks, and I hope you're, you're learning some things. But you may have noticed that the first few chapters, in fact, chapters 1, 2, and 3, we'll talk about 3 uh, more next week, but... Uh, those three chapters of this book are very introductory and they're very personal. Um, the theological meat of this, of this book, the book of 1 Thessalonians, is really kind of reserved for chapters 4 and 5. Um, there's a lot of theological meat, but it doesn't begin until chapter 4. Paul spends three-fifths of this letter assuring the Thessalonians that he loves them, he explains to them uh, his sudden and lengthy absence from them. He assures them of the integrity of his motives 
uh, with them. And, and, and he's been letting them know all through the passages that we read how he has been and he is continuing to pray for them in their current troubles, their current distress. Um, but even though the main topics, the, the things that people think about when they read First Thessalonians, even though those main topics are reserved for the last two chapters, don't misunderstand this. That doesn't mean that there's nothing of value for us in the first three chapters. And I hope uh, in, our, in our walk through this book that you've already seen that demonstrated, that there's been some things that you've learned and, and are growing by. But reading Paul's words in these first three chapters, we discover, we get a really vivid picture of what a faithful pastor looks like. How he serves the people in his care instead of demanding to be served by them. How he is connected to them both emotionally and in his prayers. And and these words in the first three chapters, I'm just going to be straight with you. They always have a really deep, convicting effect on me as I consider how I'm serving or more accurately how I should be serving the people that I love here at Northridge Life. But chapters 1 through 3 are not just filled with insights into faithful pastoring. There's so much more to be learned here. And and to be learned by you who wouldn't consider yourself in full-time ministry, who would consider yourself maybe lay people, there's a lot in here for you. We know, of course, that Paul is a model pastor. He wrote most of the New Testament. But in many ways, the Thessalonian church was striving. They're just really what we would define as baby or infant Christians. They have just begun to believe, and yet they're striving towards goals that should be common to all of us as the body of Christ. And so today, the Thessalonians, once again, are going to be kind of a case study to help us understand the bond of love that God intends for you and I to share together, and how to be an effective church that pleases God and transforms lives. How many of you want to please God? Raise your hand. How many of you want to see lives around us transformed? Raise your hand. So we've already discussed many times already that the, the, the reason this book got written, Paul was taken away from those Thessalonian believers after literally just a few weeks, one of the shortest pastorates in history. He was taken away after just a few weeks when the local Jews incited a riot because they were jealous of the effectiveness of his ministry. But Paul had become so invested in the spiritual health of that group of people that his separation from them was very, very painful. He did not like being away from them. He he didn't just move on to the next town casually or flippantly. He didn't say, well, that didn't work out. Let's see what's next. The the Thessalonians had literally captured his heart, and he he thought about them constantly, and he prayed for them always. He begins verse 17 that we read this morning with these words. He says, we were torn away from you, brothers. Now, that's obviously pretty dramatic language, but but there's more to it. I, I looked this up. It was really cool. The Greek word that is translated torn away is aporphanizo. And aporphanizo, if you listen real carefully to that word, you'll hear a word in there. And the word literally means orphaned. So Paul is saying, we were orphaned from you, brothers. Now, the, although Paul is obviously the spiritual father of this bunch, he's saying that he had the same grief in leaving them or being taken away from them as someone who's bereaved of their own parents. Think about the impact of that. When he was forced to abandon the Thessalonians, just as they were beginning to follow Jesus, it was a major emotional loss for him. Last week, I made a statement in my message that Jesus isn't just some club that you join. I said this, I said Christianity is not about accepting Jesus, but on the contrary, it's about following Jesus. And and when we decide to follow Jesus, that means with obedient action, when we choose to follow Jesus, one of the, the, the gospel's mysterious effects on those who believe and those who follow Jesus is that it binds our hearts together in love. And our love for one another literally becomes evidence of the reality of the belief we've embraced. Literally. This isn't 
necessarily the case with those who are not following Jesus, but have merely accepted Jesus. See, people who merely accept Jesus, they've, they've said the prayer and checked off a few religious boxes, those people can be satisfied with a handful of religious duties like showing up to church semi-regularly or giving a little money every once in a while, maybe voting for some candidates that they feel are on more moralistic high ground. But followers of Jesus, listen to me carefully, this is a good indication of where you're at with Christ this morning. Followers of Jesus can never be satisfied with the lowest common denominator of nominal religion. They just can't. It doesn't work for them. They're consumed with knowing God through his word and through worship and through loving others, uh, loving others with their lives in, in spiritual community. It, it, it's a marked difference between those who merely accept Jesus and those who follow Jesus. Jesus said this himself. John thirteen thirty five. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love one for another, Jesus did not say they'll know that you are Christians, that you're followers by where you hang out on Sunday, by who you vote for, by how much money you give, by the moralistic things you post on Facebook. None of those things matter if this element is not here. He said that they'll know that you're Christians by the love that you have for one another. The love described here, when he says love for one another, it can't be imagined as the way that you and I carelessly say we love golf or we love Rocky Road ice cream or even that we love going to church. But it's actually, this word is actually reflective of the same way that God perfectly and endlessly loves us. Now raise your hand real high because everyone needs to see it if you love exactly like God does. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. But when it says that we are to have love one for another. When Jesus says this in John 13, he's talking about the exact same kind of love that God has. The, the word, uh, you may know this, in the Greek is agape. There's three uh, main words used for love in the Greek. There is, there's a, a description of romantic love. There's a description of brotherly love. And then there's this agape love. It's the highest order of love that the Bible describes because it describes the nature of God's love. In fact, in the verse right before the one where Jesus says, this is how the world will know that you're my followers, Jesus redefined for everyone who would ever live the weight of the love that his disciples were to have for one another. And he does it like this. In verse 34, he says, a new commandment I give to you. Now pause. Before you read the rest of the verse, think about this. Think about how radical that was. The Jews were people who had embraced a religion of commandments. And there hadn't been a commandment given for 1,500 years since they packed up and left Sinai. And Jesus, demonstrating that he has the authority to do so as the Son of God and the Son of Man, as the Messiah, says, hey, it's time. I'm giving you a new commandment. I am upping the ante big time. And what is that new commandment? That you love one another, but not just love one another, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You, you also are to love one another. Now, don't blow past that. Think about it. This was radical. It was a radically new commandment because all of you know by heart, probably, what the law said the standard was. The law told me that I was to love my neighbor, how? As myself. And then Christ Jesus steps in, brings his kingdom in his train, and he says, this is the standard now. I don't love Dave like I love myself. I don't love Danette like I love myself. I love them like Jesus loves them. Is that a little crushing weight for anybody in here? Think about it. If it's not, you're not thinking this through. Jesus has raised the stakes considerably. How has Christ Jesus loved you? Answer that question in your heart. How has Christ Jesus loved you? Ask the question and ask yourself, how am I doing? How has Christ Jesus loved you? Obviously, he loved you sacrificially. 
with every bit of his life, with all of his blood. He loved you sacrificially on the cross. And I don't know about you, but for Mark Sharp, Christ loves him daily. I have never screwed up so bad that Jesus decided to stop loving me. And thank God, thank God, Christ loves me mercifully, constantly forgiving me. He, he loves me patiently with all my weaknesses and failures. He loves me unceasingly. To be a believer now then, if we are to love like he loves, it means to be constantly growing in love like Jesus loved towards each other. Galatians says that the way we fulfill the law of Christ, in other words, the way we do what Jesus wants us to do, the way we fulfill the law of Christ is to bear each other's burdens, meaning that with our actions we love and not merely our emotions. And so my question this morning is, are you and I growing that way? Are you increasingly more forgiving like Christ is perfectly forgiving? Are you increasingly more patient like Christ is patient? Are you, as the famous love chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians 13 says, are you with your brothers and sisters? Are you bearing all things? Are you believing all things? Are you hoping for all good things? Are you patiently enduring all hard things? Do we love each other like Christ? But there's more to it than that. See, when Paul says that he felt orphaned, what is the implication of that statement? He's indicating that the love he felt for this fledgling little church was the love that most of us reserve for family. Think about that. I, I can't, physically, emotionally, I can't love everybody. Now, of course, we always say, I love everybody, I want them all to be saved or whatever, but there's, there's a handful of people that I am able to extend a greater degree of love. Let me tell you something. I'm not ashamed to tell you this because I think you all feel the same way. If all, I love you all. I really do. I really do. That's the point. But if all of your lives are in jeopardy, everyone in this room, your lives are in jeopardy, and there's something I can do to save one of you, it's going to be ginger. It's going to be ginger because you guys don't feed me, okay? So... I have to think a little bit about myself in this decision. No, but seriously, why is it going to be Ginger? Because she has all of my heart. I'm going to save her. But so what Paul is saying, don't miss this. He's saying that the love that he has for them, somehow by a work of the Holy Spirit, the love that he has for them is the love that's reserved for family. That's why he says, I felt orphaned. I felt torn away from family when this happened. This, I talked about the action side, this is the emotive side. See, the people in Thessalonica were not just people that showed up in the same building on Sunday. They were blood. They were blood. They were family. They weren't, as he points out over and over again in chapters 1 and 2, just the warm bodies who paid Paul's salary. But they were brothers, they were sisters, they were mothers and fathers to him. When I thought about this, as I was pondering that, I I couldn't help but think of what Matthew tells us of this really interesting encounter, this incident that happened in Jesus' life. He's speaking to crowds and healing them and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, his mom and brothers show up to talk to him. They'd heard he wasn't eating. They even tells us in one place in the Gospels they thought he'd gone nuts. And, and, and they come to speak to him. And so let's pick this up in Matthew twelve forty seven. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Jesus is in there. He's doing his ministry thing. His mom and brothers come up and say, hey, we need to talk to Jesus. The guy goes in to tell him. But Jesus replied to the man who told him, and he said this, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand, to whom? Towards his disciples. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Powerful. Jesus himself, this isn't a lesser authority. Jesus himself said that it was those who are obediently following him who were his true family. Paul, 
seems to echo that sentiment with this word aporphanizo. He, he, he echoes that sentiment. He points out that a deep family bond is created when people are following Jesus together. Now listen to me. This is a great promise. This is a tremendous problem, a promise because I know that there are many of you here this morning who have had in the past or are now experiencing terrible family situations. Fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives have neglected you. They have rejected you. They have abandoned you and maybe even have abused you. And you've lived for a long time longing for someone who would just love you, who would accept you and to, who would care for you with all of their hearts. You've wanted a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister, a spouse. And the good news is that no matter what your history is, no matter what the road behind you looks like, the church can be just that for you. It can be a family to you. It can be a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister. I've said this before. I have a crazy, crazy, screwed up history childhood. Some of you have heard the story. Some of you may not have. I'll share it with you someday. But, but God has brought over the years many people in my life. I've said this publicly. Daryl and Judy play a mother-father role for me that, that I can never, ever explain how that works. But I can't also diminish the genuineness of it. It's beautiful. And God wants you to have that. The, the church is the place where you can know true love, true acceptance, true family. Now listen to me. Those of you who are cynical because you've experienced some pain at the hands of people in churches, I am not saying, nor will I ever say, that the people that could be your family are perfect. They will require a lot of forgiveness. They will require a lot of grace. But guess what? So will you. You feel me? Sometimes they are going to be hypocritical. I don't go to church because all those hypocrites in there. Well, guess what? Sometimes they're going to be hypocritical. Sometimes they might be mean and harsh, and sometimes they might be downright stupid. But so will you. So, here's my proposition to you. Why not just forget all that? You're imperfect. We're imperfect. We get it. We know it. We can accept that. So why don't you just today, if you never have, commit to be a part of a family so that you can struggle together and you don't any longer have to struggle alone? Wouldn't that be a great idea? Paul says two things about his separation from the Thessalonians. He says it was for a short time. And it was in person, not in heart. The, the separation was short because, as we've talked about, in his anxiety, Paul sent Timothy and Silas back to the church to find out how they were doing. And we know he was anxious because two times in the next chapter, in chapter 3, he says there was a point when he could, quote, bear it no longer. This was really weighing on him. And my question to you is, people of God, when you're away from the family of God, how much do they enter your thoughts? How much do they matter in your day-to-day life? Are you allowing yourself to be inconvenienced by your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are they invading your thoughts, even robbing you of sleep as you carry in your heart their sicknesses, their uh, family problems, financial issues, whatever? I have to confess to you. I have to confess to you. My wife will testify to the truth of this, that... My love for you and her love for you has been the cause of much insomnia in the sharp house. We think about you guys. We pray about you. We worry about you. And yet I have no regrets because I love you and there's not a stinking thing you can do about it. Do you, when you consider these things, do you long to alleviate the suffering that's in the body of Christ? Do you truly, as we said that scripture earlier, do you truly bear the burdens of your brothers and sisters? How much do you pray for God's intervention for those who share family life with you here at Northridge Life Church? Listen, the powerful thing about yesterday at the Bratcher's house was that was exactly what was happening. 
It was beautiful. Even when Paul couldn't do much for the Thessalonians because he says Satan hindered him, the Thessalonians were never far from his mind. So Paul made a huge sacrifice for their benefit. He was willing to be left alone on a trip. Now that may not seem like a big deal to you, but Paul was alone in utterly hostile territory. That trip had been filled with one persecution after another, and he said we were willing to be left alone so that he could send Timothy to see how that church was faring. Paul didn't just preach. This is really important. When you're following your favorite celebrity preacher, keep this in mind. Paul did not just preach. He had skin in the game for the people that he loved, big time. When when was the last time you or I really served in a way? You you can only ask yourself this. I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but you've got to ask yourself this. When was the last time you or I really served each other in a way that cost us time or energy or money? Paul states that the hindrance of Satan prevented him from being face-to-face with the Thessalonians, but nothing in this world or in hell could keep his hearts from him. He just couldn't impossible they had his heart see satan this thing about satan hindering him satan has a vested interest in destroying the fellowship of the church why do you think little gossipy slandery you know little infestations get in churches and over things that should be resolved in five minutes entire churches are split right down the middle why do you think that is because satan hates unity he hates fellowship. So heck yes, he's going to hinder Paul from being with them. He, he wants to destroy the fellowship of the church because there is a power that is released when we are walking in unity. Jesus talked about it. Think about what he said. Think about the words of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, about what happens in unity. He said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the middle of them. Think about that. When we're here... When we're at the Bratcher's house, when we go for coffee or we have a meal together, the Bible's promise is that that unity is so strong that Jesus shows up and crashes our party. Think about that. The Son of God, the Savior of the universe, the perfect sacrifice of God, the creator of everything will come and join the circle that you come and make in his name. Even if it's just two of you. That's incredible. Don't ever, don't ever, um, you know, be casual about meeting with another saint ever again. Because Jesus is right there. That's power, folks. That's an amazing promise. Think about it. Satan hates the unity of the body. It was when the disciples, Acts 2-1, were in one mind and one accord, what happened? The Holy Spirit came down on and empowered the entire church. Why? Because they were doing together. Not all spread out all over Jerusalem. They were doing together what Christ had commanded them to do. Go and wait in Jerusalem. Paul says, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, he says this I, Paul thing because he says, hey, my secretary didn't write this letter. I want you to know I wanted to be with you. This summer, Ginger and I, I'm not afraid to tell you, desperately needed a vacation. We were war plum out. It had been a tough year in ministry. Probably one of the toughest we've had in 25 years. A lot of burdens. So we took off for Yellowstone National Park. Never been there before. Wanted to see it. And we made a rule within two hours of jumping in the car. No church talk whatsoever. We're going to do it. We got we got to de- detox and unwind. Anybody want to anybody want to guess how long that lasted? We might have gotten most of one or two days in a whole two week vacation. It's impossible. It's impossible for us because we just love you too much. You have captured our hearts. But how easy is it for some of us uh, to sleep in on a Sunday because we're just tired or to make it a day for our own personal leisure or to avoid any extra sacrificial commitment to the people of, or, or, or the common mission that we have as a church? How easy is it? Now listen to me. 
that may sound like I always say pulpit pounding preaching. I, I promise you there's nothing in my heart that intends that as some legalistic jab. If I described your church habits, that's not what I'm doing. Please listen to me. But ask yourself, as you look at Paul's words to the Thessalonians, have you ever experienced what it's like to more eagerly and with great desire long for the fellowship of the body? The last, the last Sunday of our vacation, Ginger and I uh, went into a little church, great church, wonderful church, wonderful people. We felt the fellowship, presence of God, but we were sitting there, first thing, we left. We said, that was great, but it wasn't home. It wasn't home. We wanted to be with you. This, this boils down to the difference in your mindset of what you got to do versus what you get to do. It is. There's nothing wrong with coming to church. Listen, because some of you have to do this sometimes. There's nothing wrong with coming to church because of a faithful commitment, even when it's hard to make it. But if you only ever participate in the life of the body of Christ because you got to, then something has gone horribly awry. This would be a life-giving place, a life-giving experience, a life-giving community to you. Something's gone horribly wrong. See, Paul said in that that short passage we just read, he said, he wanted to come. I want to come to you. He longed to be with them even when he couldn't. And not just once, he says, I wanted to come again and again. He could not get enough of God's people. He had a strong, even emotional urge to be with other believers. Even after he was run off from Thessalonica, he turned it over and over in his mind how he could restore fellowship with them. Repeatedly, he thought about it. He valued the intimate connection that the gospel produces, but he had no opportunity to reunite with the body in Thessalonica. I want to read that to you again. Because I want us once again to take a look at ourselves. He valued the intimate connection that the gospel produces, but he had no opportunity to reunite with the body in Thessalonica. Now, by contrast, you and I have very, very frequent opportunities to gather with the church. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we value that connection and that community, or do we not? There seems to be. Three types of people, at least, in and around most churches, in the orbit of churches. First, there are people, maybe from the way they grew up or just whatever reason, that value the church as an institution. They are the rule keepers. They're the traditionalists. They show up to church most weeks because they're good God-fearing American Christians, and they trade in morality, but they rarely trade in compassion and grace. They may sing the loudest, they may give the most, they may volunteer uh, in the majority of ministries in the church, and all these things, of course, in themselves are good. We want you to keep singing, keep giving, keep volunteering. But in these folks, the heart is filled with a desire to either keep up appearances or work their way into heaven. They aren't generally happy or hospitable or, if I can be honest with you, fun to be around. They tend to be the ones that see the, the, the cloud in every silver lining. Because there's no genuine connection to Christ, they may burn out or they move about to multiple churches. It's trying to scratch some itch, find the perfect church. If you're here looking for the perfect church, I just want to be real clear with you, we ain't it. Just all the Northridge Life Covenant partners, raise your hand if that's true. So anyway, hey, y'all are hurting my feelings a little bit. I wanted you to say, oh, no, Pastor Mark, that's not true at all. Second group of people, there's people that merely tip God. They leave a few bucks. I don't mean necessarily their financial giving, but emotionally, service-wise, giving, they just kind of tip God. In their attending, giving, serving, loving, just tip him. And, and they think when they do that, that they're doing God and doing the church a big favor. When you ask them to contribute time or money that's sacrificial, they almost always respond by, let me pray about it. 
But I don't know what it is about their prayer life. God almost always seems to say no to them. Almost always. Because they never seem to benefit themselves with anything that benefits, or busy themselves rather, with anything that benefits the larger body. They like coming to church. They may like the music. They may like, you know, all the other things. They like coming to church, but they're not too keen on being the church. It may be a priority. Maybe. Very, very, very low on the list. Last, and oh God, please make us all this kind of people. Last, there's people who are like the sinful woman. And if I'm not being blunt enough, by sinful woman, I mean a whore. I'm just being straight with you. The sinful woman who anointed Jesus' head with expensive oil and she washed his feet with her tears and she dried those feet with her hair. The Pharisees who were in the first group of people, they saw it and they were absolutely disgusted. They said, if he even knew who this woman was, he would be horrified that she's even laying a finger on him. Jesus explained the situation. Explained her reaction to him with a parable, and he said this. In closing his parable, he said, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Let me ask you this. Have you been forgiven much, or have you been forgiven little? Our president said in the campaign, he said, I want to be the kind of guy that never has to repent for anything. Good luck with that. See, if you believe with all of your heart that you needed to be forgiven of little, you're probably not even a Christian. You don't get what the gospel has done. Because none of you None of you, nor I, were on God's, you know, best achievement list. When he found us, we were a mess. We were a disaster. And Jesus says that those whose perception of their sins, like the Pharisees, ah, you know, maybe God had to forgive me for something here and there, but I'm not a bad guy. Those guys will never have a lot of love for Jesus. But the people that recognize the depravity, the, the mire, the sin, the, the utter degradation that they came from, and they realize that they're forgiven of their sins, they will never have any choice but to love Him much. The truth is, no matter how hard we try, our efforts to love God, love people like Jesus did, and to lay down our lives for them, they're destined to fail for at least two reasons. One, sin has made all of you too flawed for me to love you good. Oh, but there's another thing. Sin has also made me very, very, very selfish. So I don't really care too much about you in my own strength. But there's something about knowing. There's something about when this idea comes in that all of my sins, which were great, my much sinning has been forgiven. And when I realize that, wow, and I look at you and I say, well, hold on just a second. If Jesus forgave all of my sins, most of which you'll never know about, and I look at you and some of yours are kind of obvious, and I go, wow, Jesus forgave them too. I love Jesus because he forgave me. I think I love them too because Jesus forgave them too. There's something about knowing your sins are forgiven. It makes you love. It makes you worship. It makes you treasure the Lord Jesus very much. And when we love Jesus much, we will love people more and more. Because to truly love Jesus means to love whatever Jesus loves. And there's nothing at all that he loves more than the people he created and died for. And it was the people It was the people of Thessalonica that Paul loved. I love verses 19 and 20. I've I've kind of talked about my relationship to you a lot this morning, and 
no kidding, I, I think about these two verses. In fact, Paul Brooks and I read through all of these chapters uh, recently together, and we, we really focused on this. This is how I feel about you. Paul says this about that church. He says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? When I stand before Jesus, if I have anything to brag about, I can only think of two things. One, that he died for me, that he loved me. He will, as Pastor David said this morning, he will be my only boast. But I think I might just brag a little bit on the fact that he put me in a family with people like you. I'll say, man, God, thank you so much for Daryl and Judy and them playing that role of, of mom and dad to me. Thank you for Randy and the way he's been a brother to me. Thank you for Dave and the way he's just served with me in the gospel. Thank you for Paul Landers and the way that, that he just encourages me constantly. And it'll just be, I, I won't be able to shut up about you. I'll be bragging about you. You, you church are my glory, my joy, my hope, my crown of boasting. Listen to me. Please listen to me. We're in a crisis in the church all over the world right now. But no matter what kind of little kingdoms churches in our city or around the world try to build, what counts before Christ is making each other. That means I make you, you make me into disciples of Jesus Christ, living our lives in mutual love and service to one another. That's what counts. It doesn't matter what kind of facilities we meet in. Believe it or not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how talented or how acclaimed and how many gold records our worship team has. It doesn't matter how wise or good-looking your pastor is. Y'all just got lucky. It doesn't matter how many flashy programs we offer. Or what our annual budget is. None of these things necessarily are indicative of the health of an individual church. And they may be indicative of the exact opposite. Instead, we should look at our church. Or look at other churches that are boasting of great things. And we should ask, are the people here, are they growing Are they maturing? Are they becoming more healthy spiritually? Is worship becoming more genuine and more passionate? And more importantly, does worship happen when the music stops? Does worship happen Monday through Saturday? Do the people in this congregation serve with gladness or in a spirit of drudgery? Do they give time and energy and money for the benefit of those in need inside and outside the congregation? Are they doing all of these things together as the body? Or is the emphasis on your personal relationship with God detached, completely removed and detached from the fellowship of the body of Christ? The point, lest anybody misunderstand me, the point of any true church, any God-pleasing church, should always be Jesus Christ and his glory. Always. Period. Hands down. No discussion. But one great way to know if Jesus is being glorified is by looking at the congregation, their unity, their service to each other, their love for one another. Paul says in the opening lines of his his statement to the Corinthians, his letter to the Corinthians, in this church, you guys know, we've talked about it a lot, they were messed up, man. They had all kinds of funky stuff going out, people getting drunk at the communion table, people sleeping with their relatives. It was a mess. And Paul says this to them, that church, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Listen to me, this high standard of no division and us being of the same mind And the same judgment is only possible in a church whose members are committed to costly love one for another. For Jesus first, and then wholeheartedly for each other. One of the beautiful things about our commitment that started, I don't know, a couple years ago, to end every service, or at least at some point in our service, to share the cup and the and the bread at the communion table is this. And I've said this a lot. In fact, I said it recently. That that word communion means 
common union. And many of you here are, you know, for lack of a better word, officially covenant members of Northridge Life Church. Can I tell you that, that when I talk about a common union, it's not your, piece, your name on a piece of paper. It's not. I hope you will do that. It's important for a thousand other reasons, but that is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that I can look at you and you can look at me and we say, God, I thank you. I love those people. Those people are my family. I love those people. And I love them because you first loved me. That's what John says in the book of 1 John. He says, we love why? Because he first loved us. You wouldn't even be able to. Look at these people. Look at the people around you. A lot of us are weirdos. I mean, let's, can we just call it like it is? Man, there's not one of you that wouldn't want to be my friend if we didn't have Jesus in common, I guarantee you. I, I, can, I can give you a whole list of reasons why you wouldn't want to be. But there's something that happens when you look at me and you say, man, Mark is a total mess, but Jesus forgave him. And Oh, yeah, Jesus forgave me too. Man, that gives us something so much better in common than our favorite sports team or our best hobby or where we work or where we go to school. It gives us something so much better in common. Our age, our race, it gives us so much better in common than anything like that. Anything. Our unity comes from we were saved by the same blood. We were healed by the same broken body. Together. Isn't that exciting? Praise God. And so communion this morning with a message like this, I'm going to go ahead and ask our helpers to come. Communion is something that we enjoy and we get to do because we know that we are one. We are in common union because of the blood and, and, and the broken body of Jesus Christ. So will you keep that in mind? Last week we did a thing. You guys remember where I think, or maybe two weeks ago, I can't remember, where I had you stop before you partook and give an encouraging word to somebody or pray over somebody. And man, that was powerful for me. I don't know about you, but it was powerful for me. And this is what I'd like you to do this morning. You don't necessarily have to do the same thing we did that last time, but just while you're standing in line, you know, usually, we're, and it's okay, I'm not mad about it, but usually we're eyes forward waiting for our turn to come up, you know, maybe squirt a little hand sanitizer on our hands or whatever. But why don't you turn around and look the people in line with you in, in, in the eyes and maybe just say, just say, man, I'm glad to be in this body with you. I love you. I, I'm, I'm proud to be a part of your family. It's an honor to call you brother. It's an honor to call you sister. Why don't you come to the table today, just like we did that last time, thinking about someone other than yourself. You want to try it? Thanks, James. Hey, James, I love you, man. I do. I'm glad you're my brother. I am. I'm glad you're here with me, man. I feel the same way with all of you. So let's just take a minute. Just not, not for any reflective necessarily anything, but just stop. Just stop and think about all the times you've received words of encouragement, love, and just the right word at the right time. Maybe a scripture or a prayer that someone prayed over you from this within this body. And can you just stop for a second and get your mind so off yourself that you just say thank you to the Lord for the body that he provided by his broken body? His body's united because his wasn't. It was torn to pieces so that our body could be one. So just thank him. And then if you need to make a beeline, tell them even if they're not in your line, go tell them. Tell them how grateful you are for what they've done for you. And then commit your life to do the same thing for them and everyone else. Challenge you to do that today. Let people know what they need. Ask the Lord for names and faces. Sometimes, man, life gets so heavy and we can be so daggum selfish that we just forget the contribution that people have made to our lives. But don't do that today. Think about it for a second. Don't rush. Just think.
it occurs to me that there could be someone here and you think, I can't think of anybody. Maybe you should ask yourself if that's because you've lived too detached from this body. Just ask. I'm not judging you. I'm not throwing a finger at you. I'm inviting you, man. I want you in this thing. Because you need it. We love you. We need you. You need us. That's just the way it works. And so if that is you, if you can't think of anybody or why don't you just pray and ask God to, to help you to make an intentional move into this family. It's waiting for you. Your, your place is already set at the table. We want you here. We love you. Would you all stand with me as I read these familiar words from the Apostle Paul? For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, I have a very simple prayer to pray to you this morning. I say thank you for your sacrifice once again. Lord, may you find words of gratitude on my lips every day as I recall what you did to redeem me from the pit. And Lord, at my second half of my prayer is that you would bind my hearts even my heart even more tightly with the people of this church lord god thank you so much for them lord god god i feel what paul felt is i eagerly desire to be with them more and more lord god i pray that you would bind us together lord god with with cords that cannot be broken lord god lord i just curse God, the very thought of any offense or slander or gossip that would draw, uh, drive wedges between us, Lord God. God, while we can't be perfect, may we be people who are quick to repent and apologize and people who are quick to forgive and accept, Lord God, keeping no record of wrong. Lord, heal us as a church, Lord God, from wounds that we've experienced from those who were to be members of the body of Christ. And Lord, as we come to your table, this is not Northridge's table, this is your table. As we come to your table and feast on you, Lord God, we're eating the same loaf, drinking from the same cup, Lord God. As we do that, Lord, I pray that you would unite our hearts, that you would unite our hearts as one. I ask all of this in Jesus' name.